Welcome to Deviant Women. This is the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And how are you today, Lauren? I'm great because I'm wearing a pirate hat. You are. I am. You're refusing to take the pirate hat it's off. It's fun to wear a pirate hat. And there's a reason for the pirate hat. We're going to reveal it really soon. So but not now? Well, no. No. Right. Not right now. No. They can wait. Okay, great. There's a this hook. Is, this is how you build tension. There's a hook for you. Hey, is there a hook for today's show? And is it related to pirates? Uh, no, unfortunately, we are not in pirate town. Okay. This episode, however, however, Alicia, we are going to Witch Town. Oh, we've been to Witch Town before. Why not go back again? I love Witch Town. It's my favorite town. <laughs> of all the towns to live in, no, Witch Town. No, seriously, like, which are? Oh, I just love investigating the stories of real life witches so much because there is, it's just the perfect amalgamation, really, of all of my interests. And it's bloody fascinating. It is. There is something very, very empowering still, I yes. think, for women in stories of witches, even though all the stories we have of witches didn't end very well. Well, the witches, of, especially from continental Europe, it is not as bad, I think, as a lot of people actually assume it to be, have been. like the, In terms of the numbers. The numbers mm. originally, like people claim that it's in the millions and that's it's really not. not. Yeah. But it is still a bleak story. It's a really interesting and hugely kind of problematic period in our history. I actually, what's problematic about it to me is the way that these stories have carried over into contemporary times. And this is something that I'm quite interested in and I'm writing about at the moment. And so I kind of was thinking about this writing and was inspired to tell the story of a witch. Because of course my, my research work is in revisionist feminist mythology, which is all about rethinking the ways that we look at women in historical context and the kind of archetypal roles that women have. And the witch is one that has been through many different transformations throughout history. And it's a good thing because, like you said, I think the, the contemporary figure of the witch that we have today is mm. is, is, is an empowering figure. Mm. And for me, it's a hugely empowering figure. Like it is the archetype that I kind of feel most close to if I was to pick one from the pantheon of archetypes that we have in the world. Oh, I guess I'd pick the crone. Yeah. <laughs> well, the crone and the witch she's the same, are she's one the in the same, same thing. But just, you know, feeling, a, feeling a bit old. She's feeling the older bit, version. Yeah, feeling yeah. a little bit like, you know, everything's getting wrinkly and heading <laughs> south. So, you know, maybe I'm in, the, I'm in the crone territory these days. But it wasn't always because, of course, the negative associations that we have with the crone are what really existed in this historical context. And the problem that exists, I think, in the way that we tell these stories contemporaneously, is that yes. the right word? Yes, Good. smashed it out. Excellent. Is that... The mythological figure, the crone, the evil old hag. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the version of the witch, which is that the seductress. Yes, mm -hmm. they. We both just like yeah, we, we both, both just our like shook our shoulders. The seductress. Oh. She shakes her shoulders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have kind of become conflated with the historical figure um, mm. and these real life women and men. Because yeah. there were men as well and children, yeah. which is relevant to this story, mm -hmm. who really did suffer incredible torture 
um, horrific conditions in prison and were persecuted. Yeah. And that for me is where the problem lies is the way that we conflate these two things together. Um, and so I do really want to think about the witch archetype as an empowering figure. Yeah. But I also want to pay tribute to those victims of the real witch trials. But then we also, and this is another thing that I love because this is what we love on Deviant Women, is we have these gray areas mm. in Deviant Women. This is what we're all about. Oh, Yeah. All about the overcoming of the binaries, those dichotomies of black and white and looking at the grey murkiness that is real life. That's why our aesthetic is so grey. <laughs> That's where we are literally black and white in our, everything yeah. that we do. And this brings us to the idea of guilt and innocence and the kind of murkiness that exists because I also think I'm just gonna throwing throwing a bunch of generalizations into the ring here today but hey why not another one of the associations that people often have of the real life witches is of them being victims Mm. but of course there were women who were uh, intentionally practicing witchcraft um, for good and bad and for their livelihoods and you know some Mm. of them really were practicing maleficarum yeah (laughs) yeah let's not pretend that they weren't because they Mm. totally were and so this is one particular story where i think that that line is really blurry and we maybe we have a victim and maybe we have somebody who's a little bit more cunning and a little bit more knowing than we think she is and so that brings us to the subject of today's podcast that was a lot longer than an elevator pitch but it was quite a long that would have but. been a very long elevator ride, but... <laughs> Janet Devis. Janet Devis. Nine-year-old star witness of Lancashire's Pendle Witch Trials. Oh, a nine-year-old star witness. She's our youngest deviant woman thus far. Oh, wow. With nine-year-old <gasps> Janet. Oh, my gosh. Um, a child witness whose testimony would ultimately lead not just ten people to the gallows <gasps> as a part of her own trial Uh but had ramifications in the way that witch trials were conducted and influenced trials in the u.s and so i know we're going to get to it eventually obviously we're going to start talking about it but the the reliability of a nine-year-old star witness oh we are going to talk about that oh yeah (laughs) okay yeah because actually yes that leads us into another of the key figures that's important for us to discuss first which is king james oh yeah james the first james the first of england sixth of scotland because he he was an interesting figure he sure was Mm. (laughs) so he's situating us in time as well yeah so we're the child itself took place in 1612 but we're going to just little backtrack a tiny little bit and i'll come to this issue of the nine-year-old witness issue because james has an influence in that so basically james the first what do you think of when you think of James the First? I think of Catholics being a bad thing. Yes, I that's right. I think of a fear of Catholics. You think of super paranoid, yep. super Protestant mm-hmm. James the First. Yeah, no Catholic uprisings for me. Thanks very much. Well, of course, the gunpowder plot took place in... Guy Fawkes. Yes. yes. In 1605. So, yeah, Guy Fawkes, his merry band of Catholic insurgents tried to take out Parliament House and, of course, with it, James the First. But, of course, his beef with the Catholics goes back way before that because of course he was the son of mary queen of scots and she had all of her beef with elizabeth and with the, that's a lot of beef who had her beef with her sister mary who was a catholic whose father henry was the guy who made the whole catholic protestant thing a, a an thing? issue in england um this is at the same time as over in germany we've got luther and calvin and the the reformation and then the counter reformation occurring 
Oh, history, you are a muddled thing. And so basically, end of the story, Catholics and Protestants don't like each other very much. Mm-hmm. All sorts of issues relating to power and control and the throne. And James himself grew up in a really religious Protestant upbringing, so he was quite strict. He was also probably gay. So mm-hmm. don't know if that plays into any of this at all. But, I we mean, when I think of super, super religious people who are persecuting other groups of people for being <laughs> heretical. I mean, I think that's people yeah. in glass houses. Yeah. 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 We can say Thanks, that. James. He also, but he wrote a book on demonology, didn't he? It's actually, it was called demonology. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he yeah. Did. So he was super duper paranoid about this. He was paranoid about a lot of things and his paranoia about, so he was already paranoid about the Catholics. We've established that, but yes, his second main foe are witches. And this arose because he went over to Denmark to meet his future bride, the 14-year-old Anne of Denmark. So while back in England, there had been renewed laws regarding witchcraft, specifically Queen Elizabeth's An Act Against Conjuration, Enchantments and Witchcrafts, it wasn't really a big deal. These witches weren't really in the public imagination in England or Scotland. However, in continental Europe, this was very, very different, particularly in Denmark and Germany. Witches were being trialed left, right and centre. Like it really, this is this is where the heart of the witch craze occurred. Yeah. For some reason, people associate the witch hunts with, with America. In, oh, I was going to say with England. But I Both. mean. Well, yeah. England overall only had like 500 um, executions mm. by, by, for witchcraft. And in Europe, it was. In Europe, it was that, like like. That. Tens yeah. of thousands. Mm. And in, in the US, it was like hardly anything. Yeah. So there is a strange, and I think this is just our Western kind of, you know. Lens that we lens, look at history yeah. through. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That, so, old, that old thing, that old chestnut. <laughs> so when James was there, he met up with a bunch of intellectuals and philosophers who kind of warned him about the evils and dangers of witches and the devil. And then on his return to Scotland, his ship was caught in this really horrific storm. Um, and in fact, he became convinced that those, you know what, those intellectuals and philosophers that he'd met with in Denmark were correct. And not only were witches real, but they had made him the target of an assassination plot and a plot to keep Anne out of Scotland. So while he was kind of Why would he think that witches were... Wouldn't he just think that it was some rivals that were responsible for that instead of just random... But it was conjuring a storm. Right. So he already was kind of paranoid about assassination plots on his head. Mm -hmm. And so when one takes place at the mercy of nature, this these giant tempests and storms, obviously, you know that a mortal man can't be responsible for conjuring a storm. So who are you going to blame? The weather. Can blame the witches. Oh, I would have blamed the weather. <laughs> so this incident made a really remarkable kind of mark on him. Returning to Scotland, he heard of some witch accusations in a town called North, North Berwick. So James kind of became obsessed with this. He in- attended the interrogations, he watched the tortures and the proceedings, and he became convinced that these were the witches who had plotted against him and raised the tempest that nearly mm. sunk his ship. And under his direction, over 100 people were arrested for crimes relating to witchcraft and treason. Oh, for God's sake. So his, yeah, intense kind of paranoia eventually turned into this book, Demonology. Mm, Yes. Which was published in 1597 and then again in 1603, just after he had ascended to the throne in England. And in Demonology, we see things like witches that can raise storms and tempests in the air. 
And of course, interestingly, this was also the same time as another little chap that we may remember called Shakespeare. I know that guy, yeah. Yeah, his, I don't know if you remember his play Macbeth. Never heard of it. Well, in case you didn't know, it is, you know, called a Scottish play. Small little play produced on a couple of amateur stages. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in this play, uh, there are a few witches. There sure are. Three of them. (laughs) and the way that the witches are described. So a lot of the things that these witches subscribe to, namely that they can raise storms and tempests, they dance and chart, they can vanish, they make potions. All of these things are some of the key ideas that James outlined in demonology. And so scholars are a little bit like split as to whether Shakespeare was pandering to the king by including Uh this particular depiction of witches, which is different from the continental witches. They're slightly different. Some similarities, but there are peculiarities in James's witches. Or if he was kind of actually maybe subverting them through this depiction, because ultimately it is still Macbeth who is responsible for his own demise, not the witches. Mm. So he might have also been kind of lampooning the king at the same time. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes. So in 1604, we're getting closer to Janet, don't worry. In 1604, James passed the Witchcraft Act. And this is the same one responsible. Remember our first deviant woman of season two, Helen Duncan? Yes, I do. This is the oh, same. Oh, the same one she was child under. That's right. <gasps> so so she it hung around since then. That's correct. So she was the last person tried under the um, 1604 Witchcraft Act. In, Our story, in like 1940-something, wasn't right. it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. This is early days of that wow. same act. And also a couple of other things that are important to just know about James before we move on to Lancashire and the trials is firstly another point to kind of emphasize his devout religiousness is of course remembering the king james bible oh yes of course yeah 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 (laughs) interestingly in the king james bible he changed the language of the phrase thou must not suffer a poisoner to live (gasps) to thou must not suffer a witch to live yes yeah another thing about james and this is not uncommon of the era, not a huge fan of women, generally speaking, or of women becoming educated. Um, And when it was suggested that his own daughter, Elizabeth, learn Latin, he said, to make women learned and foxes tame has the same effect, to make them more cunning. And I say, yeah, James, that's correct. (laughs) That's what happens. And we should educate more women. Yeah. (laughs) Makes them smart. We want them to be cunning. Yeah. And when, (laughs) this is another quote, when a learned maid was presented to King James for an English rarity because she could speak and write in pure Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the king asked, but can she spin? Oh! Yeah. So that's James. Just a little bit of context about that. So now that we have set our scene, let us move to Lancashire. Yes, please. And I'm actually going to do a little bit more scene setting. I love um, it. It's very Shakespearean. Thank you. And yeah, keep it up. one of my favourite writers of all time... Ooh. who has a similar name, Jeanette, rather than Janet, oh. Jeanette Winterson. She wrote a book called The Daylight Gate, well, a novella, which is all about these same trials. And I want to begin, her book opens quite atmospherically. And so I would like to just read a little bit to, to set the mood, get us in yeah. the zone. Can I make like atmospheric noises in the background? Okay. Okay, great. All right, ready? Yeah. The North is the dark place. It is not safe to be buried on the north side of the church and the north door is the way of the dead. The north of England is untamed. I'll stop. It can be subdued, but it cannot be tamed. Lancashire is the wild part of the untamed. 
The forest of Pendle used to be a hunting ground, but some say that the hill is the hunter, alive in its black and green coat cropped like an animal pelt. The hill itself is low and massy, flat-topped, brooding, disappeared in mists, treacherous with bogs, run through with fast-flowing streams, plunging into waterfalls, crashing down into unknown pools. Underfoot is the black rock that is the spine of this place. Sheep graze, hairs stand like question marks. There are no landmarks for the traveller. Too early or too late, the mist closes in. Only a fool or one who has dark business could cross Pendle at night. Stand on the flat top of Pendle Hill and you can see everything in the county of Lancashire. And some say that you can see other things too. This is a haunted place. The living and the dead come together on the hill. You cannot walk here and feel you are alone. Those who are born here are branded by Pendle. They share a common mark. There is still a tradition or a superstition that a girl child born in Pendle Forest should be twice baptised, once in church and once in a black pool at the foot of the hill. The hill will know her then. She will be its trophy and its sacrifice. She must make her peace with her birthright, whatever that means. Oh. Lauren and I froth over like similes and metaphors like yeah. that. The way some people froth over like cars. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> when I read the, uh, <laughs> the head, question, like, mark. question marks. Was, ah. Anyway. So good. So hopefully that has set our scene. Oh, yeah. Shivers. I got shivers. Pendle mm. Hill, Lancashire, 1612. Little Janet Devis is nine years old and she lives with her family who are made up of her mother, Elizabeth, her grandmother, Demdike, and her sister, Alison, and her brother, James, in a place called Malkin Tower. Can I just say, interrupt for a second. So she said her grandmother was called Demdike, but Demdike's like a kind of like, that's a nickname that's given to a certain kind of person, isn't that's it? correct because the Demdike is actually an amalgamation of a devil woman. Yes, yeah. Or demon woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's not her actual Christian name. That's no. her. That's like a, a moniker, I suppose, that she would have been given by the local people. Because or... she was a cunning woman. Yeah. And so she was, you know, kind of there was this fear, I guess, or maybe not fear is necessarily correct, but I suppose the community knew who she was. Yeah, so cunning women are engaged in things like folk healing, sometimes midwifery. Mm -hmm. You would go to them if you have a grievance perhaps with your neighbor or if you mm. want some advice about something. They're a bit of a... They're an ombudsman. Yeah. <laughs> They're the local ombudsman. Well, with actually, some magic. Yeah, <laughs> a magical ombudsman. But it also reminds me a little bit of the conversation we're having with Hannah Kent recently yes. about some of the figures in her second novel, The Good People. Yes, Because she right. has that kind of figure in there as well. Same thing. Yeah. Exactly, same thing. But she was not the only cunning woman in the town Ooh, of rival, Pendle. rival cunning woman. Rivalry is exactly what we have here. Mm. The Devis family's key rivals were the Chattoxes. So the Chattoxes were made up of Anne Chattox and her daughter Aunt Redfern, who also made a living from healing and begging, and some might even say extortion. Ooh. And this is the same, both families. So another thing that's going to be important to this story is not just this rivalry, but knowing how extremely poor mm -hmm. these families are. Mm -hmm. So, and for Janet, this is particularly, I suppose, a thing because she was also the bastard of the family. Oh, okay. So her father was unknown. Her brother and her sister were both to the, the same father. Yeah. Yeah. But she... Mm, 
So was the father gone then? Yes. From the other, so the mother was just... He was dead. Oh, he was dead, right. And so she grew up not knowing who her father was. And I suppose this probably made her feel a little bit of of an outsider even within her own family, in a family that are already outsiders in the community. So she's an outsider within the outsiders of the outsiders. Yeah. Um, So the family did make a lot of their living from begging as well as these kind of cunning woman activities. It's really actually kind of difficult, I think, for us to even imagine the scope of poverty that they lived in. You know, Mm. this is a time when... A whole family can live on a potato, you know, when times are tough. And so with this kind of poverty in mind, this rivalry was escalated when in 1601, a member of the Chaddock's family broke into Malkin Tower and stole goods worth one pound, which is equivalent to about a hundred pounds in today's money. Oh, wow. So for the family, that would have been really devastating. So in March 1612, Alison Devis, who was 11 years old, was out walking in Trawden Forest when she came across a peddler named John Law and his son, Abraham. She wanted to buy some pins from him. And these were handmade metal pins that were often used for things like healing and treating warts, but also for divination and magic. So Law refused to sell them to her. And this could have been because she wasn't actually offering to buy them from him, but was begging. Okay, yeah. And he was just like, rack off, you filthy scumbag. Beggar. Beggar, you Mm -hmm. know, as... I'm sure he had some harsher words than that. Probably way harsher. Or maybe he knew that she wanted the pins for some kind of, or suspected that she wanted the pins for some kind of magical thing. Some darker purpose. Mm -hmm. In which case, why was he carrying metal pins in the first place if he didn't? Anyway. Rack off your (laughs) dog bag. So either way. Yeah, that's right. That's what he said. Rack off your dog bag. That's exactly what John Law said to Alison Davis. Great. In return, Alison cursed him. Oh, she placed a curse on him. And a few moments later, John Law collapsed. Really? That quick? That that curse happened quick. He became unable to speak or move. He's described as having been drawn awry. His face collapsed. His speech wouldn't work and his left arm stopped working. Now, he tell was probably me, having a stroke. I was just going to say, tell me what <laughs> symptoms they remind you of. I think he's having a stroke. He probably had a stroke. Mm. Most scholars are pretty convinced that he had a stroke. Yeah. However, back in the day, didn't know what a stroke was. Yeah. So when an 11-year-old granddaughter of the local cunning woman... That is a pretty, like, coincidentally timed <laughs> yeah. stroke to have, though. Yeah, immediately after she curses you for yeah. not pleasing like not giving her some magical pins yeah and then you're on the ground (laughs) i mean it's not hard to see why this connection was made (laughs) yeah Uh now the peddler's son abraham was obviously convinced that this was witchcraft oh yeah (laughs) why wouldn't you be really and he reported the incident to the local magistrate a man named roger noel now noel was quite ambitious he really wanted to impress those around him by playing the good Protestant magistrate and bringing down the hammer on those deemed by the king to be dangerous nonconformists. I have a feeling this man is going to be trouble. Catholics and witches. He's going to bring some trouble to the Catholics and the witches, especially the Catholic witches. Good song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because actually that's something that I forgot to mention that Lancashire was at the time. Making songs. They were all singer-songwriters <laughs> who had been cast Making out of Making an album about witches. Yes. Uh-huh. That James would have none of. <laughs> what I did want to say, though, is the area of Pendle Hill at the time was considered to be quite lawless. So firstly, they didn't really take very happily to Henry VIII's overthrowing of the church, and mass was often continued to be celebrated Ooh. in secret. And Secret Catholic Mass. It was also fabled Just for its... Just like witches at black masses. 
Yes. Sorry, just as long as we're singing. All sorts of different masses. Yes, we've got black masses and we've got Catholic masses and both of them are outlawed. There are other kinds of outlaws too. It was fabled for its theft, violence, and sexual laxity. Ooh, sounds like my kind of town. Where the church was honoured without much understanding of its doctrines by the common people. Wait, did you say theft and violence? Yes. That doesn't sound like my kind of town. No, but, you know, sexual laxity? Is that what you like? (laughs) Yeah, that's much more my kind of thing. Plus all those singer-songwriters. Yes, yeah. That sounds exactly like my kind of town. So he was here. He's going to clean up this mess. Oh, he's a man of, like you said, man of ambition. Man of ambition. He's going to set it straight. Yes. So (laughs) another thing here is that in 1612, just earlier in that year, every justice of the peace had been instructed to compile a list of those who refused to attend the English church and take communion, which had become a criminal offense. So he had a lot to prove. Yeah. And he was going to do it. So he interviewed Alison who immediately confessed to bewitching John Law. And I imagine just similar to the peddler's son, Abraham, she probably believed that she had done this Yeah, well. she probably thought, holy shit, that worked. Yeah. Oh, what the fuck did I just yeah, do? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. I've had those moments in life where I've been oh. like, I want this to happen, and then it happens, you're like, did I do that? Was, do you, that coinc- was that a coincidence or did I just shift time and space? Do you know what? I have, like, a really intense anecdote. Shall I tell it? Yeah, do it. Just do okay. it. At a very similar age to Alison Devis. I was actually Are you 12 years Allison old. Alison with a Z? It's with a Z. Her oh, okay. name is spelled with a Z. Alison Devis. At 12 years old, I had just been kind of kicked out of my friend group mm. by... Those bitches. Yes. Much to my surprise. I didn't see it <laughs> didn't coming Didn't see it coming. And it was devastating and I was quite lonely for a very long time. This is actually true trauma that we should yes. like, not, not make light of. It lasted several months of deep depression and anxiety and loneliness. Aww. And I remember sitting where I was eating my lunch in the toilet stall. This is quite a sad oh, story. Oh, no. This is a very sad story. But You're breaking to- my heart. In the toilet stall at lunchtime. Oh, that's unhygienic. I said a little... Ooh. A little... Curse. No, a prayer. Oh. Like, please, I'm so lonely. I don't want to be like, please help me. I don't want to be lonely anymore. This is awful and I hate life. And then I walked out of that toilet stall and a group of girls approached me and asked if I wanted to hang out with them. Oh my God. And then they became my friends. Oh. And then I became convinced that I had a really special relationship with God. That he was just like particularly looking after me. And so I would do things like if it was raining while I was doing my homework and I couldn't concentrate because it was mm-hmm. really loud, mm-hmm. I'd be like, hey, God, that <gasps> rain is really distracting. And then the rain would stop, um, see, which of course is confirmation bias. And so I became yes. convinced that I had magical powers. And because like a witch, you were controlling the weather. That's right. And I would do it with stoplights. I'm oh like, hey, it's really inconvenient to me that this is still red. Yeah. I'd like it to go green. Now I want to cross the road. Yeah. And it would. And it just happened with all sorts of little things that there were probably just a huge collection of coincidences that confirmed to me that Mm -hmm. I was magic. But then it became really apparent because I went to a Catholic school and then I became really, really paranoid (laughs) that because I was also really, really into witchcraft at the same age. Uh, Like when I was 12, that's really when mm -hmm. I got into the craft and Buffy the Vampire Slayer (laughs) and uh, my friends and I would like you know, say spells at lunchtime and read books of magic. and Love it. Love it. Do seances at night. And so then, because I now had this really special relationship with God, I became really terrified that I was a witch and I was going to go to hell. I like how much your witch powers are, like, tied up with God. Yeah, well. Wow. 
I mean, I didn't really know what else to attribute it to until the devil, because, but that meant that I became really, really paranoid. And I was just like terrified that I was actually communing with the devil and I was going to go to hell. Yeah, you're going to go to hell. And maybe this had all been a terrible mistake mm-hmm. until this is this whole story says so much about the person that I am now. It by really the way. does. Like this is peak Lauren. This whole story. <laughs> I love it. And then my mom became a spiritualist, and so then when I was thirteen, all of this energy instead was channeled into I love your mom. Spiritualism and guides and angels and talking to the dead. And it became fine again and I was really empowered by it. And I started using crystals and reading tarot. And um, now I study witches and mediums. Uh, See how that came full circle. PhD. So full circle. That was a long anecdote. There you go, people. That is Lauren. That's Lauren in a nutshell. That is That's the history of Lauren. Let's just change this episode to be about you instead. That anyway, that's sad. That's a sad story with a happy ending, though. With a happy ending. It's a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I ended up doing a PhD in witches and and look at you go and applying it here this very day to this very podcast. That's great. So let's get back to Janet. No, let's get back to Alison. So she believed, like I did, that she also possessed (laughs) magical Uh powers. Yeah. So Alison Devis, as well as her mother Elizabeth and her brother James, was summoned to appear before Noel on the 30th of March, 1612. Now here... Alison confessed that she sold her soul to the devil. So this is quite a leap. That is a leap. From um, what she said before. And a scholar called Robin Briggs suggests that people who were kind of socially or economically disadvantaged actually had a tendency to put themselves into more destructive situations. And so if they, I guess the thing is they don't have anything to lose really. Yeah. I'm not really sure why, but apparently this was a thing that people did. Mm. They kind of escalated these bad events for some reason. So James, her brother said that he heard Alison confess to bewitching a local child. Mm. And her mother Elizabeth, meanwhile, admitted that her mother, Demdike, had a mark on her body. Now, this is very important because one of the key pieces of evidence of having sold your soul to the devil is that physical mark. So particularly in English witchcraft, we have imps, the devil's imps, your familiars. Yeah. And they feed on you through these marks. It's your witch's nipple, basically. that's right. So apparently Demdike has these... Nipples. Yeah. So Nipples. Noel then Nipples. asked them about Anne Chattox. Now, she, remember, was the rival yes, cunning woman. Mm-hmm. As rumours also circulated about Chattox's involvement in witchcraft. And so given, remember that whole story oh, about Oh, they stole the, the stuff from the tower. That's right. Yeah. The stolen goods. Alison may have seen this as an opportunity for revenge. Ooh. And so she accused Anne Chattox of murdering four men Ooh. by witchcraft and of killing Alison's own father, what? John Devis, who had died in 1601. Remember how I briefly mentioned John yeah. Devis? So he had died in 1601. This is escalating. It's escalating very quickly. And also 1601 to 1612. So mm-hmm. Janet, obviously, not alive yet when her, well, the other father. Oh, yes. The father of James yep, and Alison yep, yep. died. So the story here is that John Devis had apparently been so terrified of Chattox that he would give her eight pounds of oatmeal every year in return for her promise not to hurt his family. What? Oh, my God. However, in 1601, John didn't give her the oatmeal. <gasps> and what do you know? Oh, he died. John died. Holy crap. And so, of course, the whole family were like, well, fucking Anne Chattox killed Clearly. John Devis. About the oatmeal. Over oatmeal. Eight pounds of oatmeal. Yeah. Hey, look, 
like I said, this is extreme poverty. That's actually oh, yeah, like, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a very important amount yeah. of oatmeal. So before you know it, Anne Chaddix and Chaddix's daughter Anne Redfern were also summoned to appear before Noel, and so was Granny Demdike. That's a great name, <laughs> Granny Demdike. Both Chaddix and Demdike were very, very old and frail. Hey, wait a minute. Dyke. No. So just Dyke means woman. Yes. Devil woman, dem demon, dyke woman. So if you're a dyke, you're just a woman. Yeah, a woman's woman. A woman's woman. You're just a woman's woman. Yeah. So they were both very old, but they also both confessed to having sold their souls to the devil about 20 years before. Redfern, Chaddix's daughter, would not confess to anything, but Demdike accused her of making clay figures, presumably in some kind of voodoo doll yeah. type situation. And the clay figures are another element of James the first's demonology. The Chaddixes, of course, pointed their fingers back at Demdike and the Devis clan, and this led to the arrests. So Noel formally arrested and committed Demdike and Chaddix and Redfern and Alison Devis to Lancaster jail to be tried for Maleficarum, mm -hmm. which is causing harm through witchcraft. witchcraft. This means that Elizabeth Devis and James had been let off the hook. However, they then decided that they were going to hold a bit of a meeting at their house at Malkin Tower, which was not really a tower, more of a hovel. <laughs> On the it evening... Doesn't sound as good. <laughs> it doesn't. No. no, Malkin Hovel. Malkin, by the way, is a regional slang word for slut or slasher. Oh, my God. And... Jeez. Yeah. Slut hovel. So they're going to hold a meeting in slut they, hovel. They live in slut oh hovel. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this, again, tells us socially where the family yeah. stood. Nowhere. Malcolm, they were in the bottom of that hierarchy. That's right. Yep. They held this gathering in the middle of the day on Good Friday. This sounds like a mistake. Now, where are you supposed to be on Good Friday? Church. The English church. Why aren't you in English church? It's a really good question. Oh. That's a question that Noel also asked. Because yeah. if we remember that James I had made this mandate that those who don't take confession and communion be, you know, they have to present themselves or suffer the consequences. Mm. And so Noel caught wind of this event and he inquired into its purpose and who the attendees were. After all, as far as he's concerned, they might have been having a party, which, by the way, we're not sure if it was like a kind of solidarity gathering. Yeah. If it was a party, they did steal a sheep and eat the stolen sheep. Oh. So that kind of suggests maybe it's a little bit more of a fun time gathering. But, of course, as far as he's concerned, this could also be a gathering of witches, yeah. also known as the Sabbath. Yeah. So he went along with his men and made eight arrests. So he does arrest Elizabeth Devis and James Devis. And then another local woman named Alice Nutter. And she was from I a... I said great name. Alice Nutter. Alice yeah. Nutter. She was from Love a... It. She's from a respectable landowning family, but a Catholic family, mm. however. Yes. Along with Catherine Hewitt, John and Jane Bullcock, Alice Gray and Janet Preston. This is a different Janet. Mm -hmm. They were all taken to Lancaster Castle and they were kept in a space about 20 feet by 12 feet. That's not really very... When you have 12 people, that is a very tiny space. Yeah, it is. And so it's perhaps unsurprising that this period of imprisonment, which lasted four months, by the way... What? Yep. ...saw the end of Granny Demdike, mm. who did not survive the yeah. period of prison. Which, again, like I said, it's not surprising. Mm. And actually a lot, a lot of people who were arrested on charges of witchcraft died, died in, in prison. prison. Yeah. So, Awaiting their trials before yep. they were ever actually trialed, yeah. 
Yeah, because they were also tortured and subjected to interrogations mm-hmm. and not fed. Not fed, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It was cold and cramped. Anyway, so back to Janet. Janet Devis was present at the meeting too, but her she was 99 years old. And now her entire family was in prison. And we don't know where she spent those four months waiting for the trial, but it's possible that she was put under the protection of Roger Noel, Mm -hmm. the magistrate. So let us now come to the trial. This is the heart of where Janet rises to her full glory. (laughs) That's what we can call it. (laughs) That is what we can call it. So the trial began on the 18th of August, 1612. There were two judges in the case and a jury. Now, Alison, as we remember, she was pretty convinced of her own guilt. However, when she was asked if she could restore the peddler, she didn't believe that she could. But she did say that her grandmother Demdike would have been able to. So it's a shame that she was Was, dead. Yeah. So after the stroke, he basically was just, he didn't recover. No, he did. Well, he he was alive. He He survived. He survived. Yes. Yes. He survived, but he wasn't like at his full. Yeah, yeah. Because if the idea was, can she restore him? Yes. Then he must have been. Because he was suffering the consequences of a stroke. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, he still had long-term effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they obviously don't know why that is. Yeah. So, yes, they wanted her to be able to reverse it and Mm -hmm. she couldn't. Yeah. yeah, that's because it's a stroke. Because he had a stroke. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to <laughs> reverse that. Now, Elizabeth Devis, the mother of Alison and Janet and James, was then brought to the stand. Now, this is where the original, so the trial records were made by a man named Thomas Potts. He recorded this trial really, really well. And that's why we know so much about it. And it was published as um, A Discovery of Witches. That's a great name it for is. trial. Yep. And... This part of the trial gets really interesting. And I did read some of the original. If you can read Old English, it's fine, but it is a little bit tricky. So he describes Elizabeth quite frightfully. Apparently she was cross-eyed, like with one eye higher than the other, you know, one drooping down. And he kind of emphasizes her ghastliness and her ugliness. Like she's really portrayed as the crone in -hmm. his records. Now, on the stand, Elizabeth protested her innocence. She was kind of shouting and screaming at the jury. But this was made far worse when our star witness, Janet, Mm -hmm. took to the stand to testify against her. Now, this is from A Discovery of Witches. Her mother, according to her accustomed manner, outrageously cursing, cried out against the child in such fearful manner as all the court did not a little wonder at her, and so amazed the child, as with weeping tears she cried out unto my lord the judge and told him she was not able to speak in the presence of her mother. So once Elizabeth was taken away, so they removed removed Elizabeth from the court. Mm -hmm. And once they did, Janet jumped up onto the table and apparently quite calmly began to denounce her own mother as a witch. She said she knew it to be true, that she had seen her spirit come to her at Mulkin Tower in the form of a brown dog that she called Ball. That's a good name for a dog. Now, Ball, she said, helped her kill a man named John Robinson. And then about three or four years later, she called on Ball again to help her kill James Robinson. She also said that her mother had invited people to the house and when asked who they were, her mother told her that they were witches. She described the scenes of the night of Good Friday, naming those present and saying that they had been there to give a name to Alice and Devis's spirit or familiar. Mm. 
Now, this in the trial records became one of the first references made in an English trial to the witch's Sabbath. Oh, right. So this is how it was kind of portrayed. Yeah. It's no longer just a gathering of friends of, you know, yeah. support because they're, you know, family are imprisoned. It's now the witch's Sabbath. Mm. She also told them that Elizabeth had taught her two prayers, one to cure the bewitched and one to procure drink. <laughs> Now, the fact that Janet was on the stand at all was remarkable. So this brings us, finally, I meant to get to this ages ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So when I was saying about James I, in demonology, he made allowances for child witnesses in witch trials. So Because up until then you couldn't have a child witness, could you? You had to be 14 years old, otherwise you were considered to be unreliable. Yeah. Which, you know. For some good reason. (laughs) Within witch trials generally, there had been some children prosecuted for witchcraft and they were deemed to be more likely to be a witch if a parent was a witch, Mm. which is where we get the Alison and James and Elizabeth Mm -hmm. connection from. Less likely, though, of course, was children who took to the stand as witnesses. They did often take to the stand as victims of witchcraft. So if they were had been bewitched, and this is what we see in the Salem trials. Yeah. Which came after this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But Janet was kind of the first really like genuine child Mm. witness whose testimony was taken very seriously Mm -hmm. by the court because really her testimony is the primary piece of evidence that's used in this trial and really it's upon which the entire prosecution's case kind of rests. Mm. So she then said that James had been a witch for about three years and that his familiar was a black dog named Dandy who he called on to help him kill a woman named Mistress Townley and a man named John Hargraves. I also imagine these familiars as, you know, in The Witch, the film. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. With Black Phillip. Yeah, Black Phillip. Black Phillip, Black Phillip. It's great. (laughs) When Uh Black Phillip is talking to them, that's the voice that I imagine Dandy and Ball having when they're talking to them. Yeah, definitely. So anyway. good. I love that Dan, Dandy. 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 It's such a good name for a familiar. It's a really good name for a familiar. So Janet then went on to recite some chants that she said that she had heard James use. Now, this would have probably been quite creepy. Like imagine <gasps> this yes. nine-year-old oh, girl. Oh, God, it's like a horror film. Yes, at the stand reciting some nursery. Oh, gross, no. You oh, know. Small children are the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> And apparently these were really probably just made up of a mix of old prayers, kind of folk songs, probably yeah, nursery rhymey type things, just sort of smushed together in what she, you know, would have thought sounded like a Mm -hmm. witch's chant. Mm -hmm. But Janet was not the only one to kind of denounce her family. James also turned against his mother, despite the fact that he was on trial himself. And he said that Elizabeth and Demdike both made clay figures So the combination of evidence of clay figures, animal familiars, including bite marks, like I said, Janet claimed that Demdike had bite marks, kind of all match, again, the descriptions of witches from demonology. Mm. But this is all just, this is all just hearsay though. Like there's no physical evidence of anything here at all, is there? Yes, that's correct. Okay. (laughs) Seems like a really good way to carry out a trial. Yes. Now, Janet was apparently very articulate on the stand. Apparently she came across as being quite intelligent, as being very confident. She's described as being intelligent, cunning, and pliant. Now, 
This might be, though, because as another scholar named Ronald Seth suggests, someone may have coached her regarding her testimony. Um, Yeah, because where was she the last four months? Who was she living with? That's right. Exactly. She was probably coached by... Knowles. The prosecution. Knowles. Yeah. Exactly. Seth doesn't actually say who he thinks may have coached her. Mm. But they did kind of test her as well. So they did like a lineup. Of witches, you know, just like a normal lineup, mix in those real witches with some fake ones, with some people you've just plucked off the, the street. Yeah. And Janet was able to pick out all of the women um, and men who had been at Malkin Tower on Good Friday. They also kind of made up names. They said, like, oh, have you heard a, a what about this lady? Was she there? And she was like, I've never heard of that person before. Mm. So, kind of confirming, you know, mm-hmm. that she wasn't just making everything up, yeah. but she was still accusing real people in her community. Mm. And so all the people who she said had been killed through witchcraft mm. were genuine people who had yeah. died in that period of time yeah. as well. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so... She wasn't just picking names out of a like out of her ass. No, these were all kind of like community members and, and, and some of them like known rivalries and things like mm. that as well. So, yeah. However, as, again, Robin Briggs, I'm going to bring Briggs back into it. Briggsy. Who made up a large part of my PhD. Anyway, points out that using children as witnesses is a bit of a double-edged sword, Mm. perhaps unsurprisingly, because children were prone to making false accusations, but could also be a kind of pernicious way to make convictions. And so this is where if Janet had been coached, Mm. then this is a way for the prosecution to use a child who, look, ideas about like concepts of childhood at the time yeah. It's not necessarily that children are believed to be completely innocent. Children were actually in Protestant theology were kind of seen to be just as responsible for their actions as adults. Yeah. So they weren't necessarily, they don't have this kind of like, distinction between. Yeah, yeah. All this sort of idea of childhood innocence that I think is often attributed to children at the time, they were actually seen to be like in, deemed inherently wild if they were left to their own devices. And they were equally capable of sin, regardless of how old they were. Does it, like the thing is, is if you know any nine-year-old children, fuck, they're liars. Oh yeah, they're such liars. <laughs> oh my god. Because well, this is the other thing is that okay. So here's where we get into some of the issues about child witnesses. Is that yes, they are liars, but they're also very imaginative. Yeah. Great storytellers mm-hmm. and. Again, people suggest that maybe some of the kinds of – there's actually a bit of an appeal in stories of witchcraft and the devil that kind of taps into the child imagination. Yeah, definitely. It's the stories of adventure and conquest yeah. and, oh, my God, these wild imaginative things. Yeah. What if they're real? And they kind of get caught up in it. Yeah. And that sense of power as well. Yeah. That, like that it gives you that sense of like, well, if I can do these things, then there's power in that. I have a That's power. Right. I think power plays are actually – quite an interesting the power dynamics in this story are really interesting because of the fact that janet is a nine-year-old bastard Mm -hmm. beggar daughter of this outcast family so she is the most powerless person Mm. probably in the entire community and she has been given the most powerful position in this trial yeah and so so that 
is one element. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But yeah, coming back to this idea about children's kind of fantasies and the stories that they tell and the lies that they tell, another scholar called Hans Siebold suggests that, you know, while children have an excellent talent for spinning wild tales to please adult listeners, they know what adults want to hear. Mm And so when they began their confessions or their accusations, even if they knew they were lying in the beginning, as the trials continued, they often began to believe what they were saying and it becomes a reality. And of course, children are very, very suggestible. Yeah. So if you've got this combination of a willingness to believe a suggestibility, and if you are a prosecutor who can get in the ear of a child and kind of, you know, pose leading questions mm-hmm. and, and leading kinds of ideas, you can have a child become your tool. Yeah, you can manipulate them. Absolutely. Yeah. So whether Janet was intentionally malicious in convicting her mother, brother and sister, along with all the others, or if she got caught up in this kind of like you know yeah that attention seeking is such an important part of it because it's like oh i've said that oh now you're listening yeah now you're listening i'll keep going and here's the next thing and here's the next and you're still listening and everyone's looking at me probably i mean we don't know how much kind of sway she would have had in her own house if she's used to this kind of attention you know like her mother was probably busy trying to get the keep everyone alive yeah yeah so we don't really know why she did it but i do suspect that the attention seeking and the power is probably a big part of it and the four months leading up to it where she's being in the ear of had someone in her ear yeah with Mm. roger noel in her ear the other thing to consider is that sometimes children used accusations as a mechanism to get back at adults they resented yeah that's true and against whom the children had no other recourse for revenge or power So children could really take out their resentment towards their parents through their accusations. And really trials encouraged family members to act out against each other because it kind of dismantled the normal power structures Mm. that exist. This feeds into some really problematic notions, though, as well, because obviously in the modern world, children can testify against family members. Yeah. And so it's also it's also really difficult to suggest that all children who testify are testifying for some level of attention seeking yeah. or for some level of revenge, because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, children's testimony now is so incredibly important and essential in yeah. so many uh, family situations. And these days a child witness can be used so long as it's deemed that the child is capable of understanding yeah. the consequences of their testimony. It's not like an actual, it's not like an age limit per yeah. se. It's more a level of comprehension of what's yeah. occurring. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting thing to talk about her in this particular situation and obviously, you know, with the, with the grace of hindsight, we certainly assuming that all the actual witchery didn't really occur, but but also that it that doesn't mean that some of these things that she said didn't happen. Yeah, that's right. Especially because, like I said at the top of the show, a lot of women really did practice. Yeah, witchcraft. Exactly. You know, they intentionally did spells. They intentionally. You, I mean, superstition especially was really heavily tied up with folk tradition and yeah. belief, Catholicism, and so it's really difficult to separate these things. And yeah. our modern interpretations of what is "quote unquote" real and what is not, it can't apply mm. then. Like you know, so it is entirely possible that Janet 
truly believed that what she was saying was true and that she really did see her mom and her brother talking to dogs and that she believed and that then people died and so it's easy to make those connections um she definitely probably would have seen her grandmother making mixing herbal yeah you know but the thing is is just she doesn't realize that level of what she's saying she doesn't realize the actual the weight that that carries i don't know i mean it's hard to say because i think that it's possible that i mean did she know that her family were going to be hanged i mean we would assume that she would know that the penalty was death yeah but what does that mean to a nine-year-old child that's true what see oh god oh there's there's so much here well this kind of brings us to the next point which is basically that nine of the accused were charged Mm. uh, found guilty of various crimes relating to witchcraft so both from her family and from the rival family as well yes that's right Mm -hmm. so there was all the people who were arrested at Malkin Tower on the day of Good Friday Demdike had died in prison so nine of them were sentenced and they were sentenced to hanging at Gallows Hill and it's possible really that Janet herself was actually in attendance Mm. at that hanging and the type of hanging that we're talking about here is not the kind that came later which is the drop and the neck snap this is the unfortunate early kind of hanging which involves strangulation Mm. so if you i mean if you think about that she surely potentially she watched her mother her brother and her sister strangling for 20 minutes Oh, stuff, you know, people would pull on their legs and stuff to make it quicker. To try and hurry it up, yeah. That's a really kind of horrifying image. Mm. And did she know that she was responsible? Or did she know that that was even what was going to happen? Yeah, because, I mean, she was responsible. No, she wasn't. Okay, this is the thing. Is... I guess this is the big question of this whole episode. Whose culpability is it? Yeah. Is it Roger Noel, Mm. who was in her ear? Maybe oh, he well, wasn't in her And the ear. thing is, we're just saying that, though. Exactly. We're, we're like, oh, he was in her ear. I mean, it's it's circumstantial, isn't it? You would think there's a whole four months between the arrest and the trial itself. What has happened in that period of time? Yeah. We can't know. We don't know. And we can't, yeah, we can never know um, unless some historian out there wants to uncover something that fills in that gap for yeah. us would be wonderful. But we kind of casually are saying, oh, he was in her ear for sure. Yeah. But we can't. We don't know. We don't know that. Because maybe she really did just want to take her revenge on her family. Maybe she yeah. was sick of being the, you know, the runt of the litter, the bastard child mm-hmm. who, you know, maybe she was treated like crap by her family because she was an outsider of the outsiders. But what happened to her afterwards, though? She has no family left now. No. Her entire family. We don't know what happened to her immediately after the trial, but we do know what happened to her some 22 years later. Oh, and does that illuminate? anything for us um it's an interesting ironic turn of events oh i love a bit of irony so really oh so i just want to also say before that that alison her sister was just 11 years old and Mm. so became the youngest english witch not only to be arrested and convicted but to be Be hanged and so i think it is important also to remember that we don't just have a problematic child witness here we also have a child conviction. An 11-year-old girl. Who believed that she was guilty of something just because a man happened to have a stroke near her mm. in the forest. And that was it. Yeah. That's what happened. A man had a stroke in her presence. And she died horrifically because yep. of it. Mm. So. Makes all that witchy stuff 
all the trivial witchy stuff yeah. that we consider, when you actually put into perspective the reality of yeah. who died and how they died. And this is why I think it's really important to look at these types of stories, these histories separate from the mythology that we have about witchcraft. And because, like, you know, we were saying earlier, witches have become a really empowering figure, but it's important to remember the real people who suffered tremendously because mm. of these hunts. Yeah. You know, and the wild coincidences and, you know, these, like, just nothing events that occurred that, mm. that led to hundreds of people yeah. dying. And accusations and counter-accusations. Yeah. Evidence doesn't exist. It's just people's word against other yeah. people's word. So this trial was really landmark because of Janet's testimony and Thomas Potts writing so the publication of the trial were used as a reference in the handbook for magistrates for the county justice and the book was used by all magistrates including those in the colonies in America because oh, I was gonna say so because Salem comes mm-hmm. shortly after this really doesn't it yeah so, so- And because we had children testifying in Salem, so it must have had an influence. Yep, so this kind of became a bit of a benchmark case for allowing child witness testimony during witch trials. Mm. So that, yeah, absolutely led to things like the Salem witch trials as well as other trials, including one that came... In 1634. Okay, so this is adult now. So, yeah, 22 years later, Mm -hmm. a 10-year-old boy named Edmund Robinson, he was out picking berries and he got home late because that's what happens when children go picking berries. They come home dirty and late and... Full of berries. Yes, and then they get sent away without their dinner. When he got home, his dad was really pissed off. He's like, where have you been? You are very dirty and late. So Edmund, those are exact words. Edmund told a story that as he was walking, he came across two greyhounds and one of the dogs turned into a witch and then the other dog turned into a boy and then the witch turned the boy into a horse the and then the witch rode that horse to a house that was full of witches, like 60 witches. And the house was also full of ropes and if you pulled the ropes, there was food attached and the food came down when you pulled the ropes. What? And then he ran away and then when he was running away, he met a boy who had cloven hooves and they got in a fight and that's why he was scruffy and dirty. Edmund, you're on crack. <laughs> So the stupid thing about this story was that it was accepted as like a perfectly reasonable no, Edmund. reason for being late. No, Edmund, that's not a reason for being late. Go to your room and think about what you've done. Instead, what his dad did, instead of doing that, which is what he should have done, he took him from church to her church and asked him to point out all of the witches oh, that he had seen sake. at the house. It's not, it didn't really happen. 20 people were arrested in February 1634. And one of the accused was a Janet Davis, who had been accused of killing Isabel Nutter. So another of the Nutter clan. The Nutters. Mm -hmm. The Catholics. Now, the Catholic Nutters, yes. Things had changed a bit by now. It was now Charles I on the throne, and he was not quite so gun-ho about the witches thing as James. He was a little bit more sceptical, a little bit more subdued, Mm -hmm. a little bit more rational about these things. So some of the accused were sent to London so they could be examined properly. Oh, what a clever idea. Thank you. Yes. So part of this means that they were looking for those witches' marks. Now, Janet... Well, that still doesn't really help. Yeah, but at least they were trying. (laughs) Well, that's still not real evidence. It is actually going to get better. Okay. Janet was said to have two witch's marks 
in her quote unquote secrets. Ooh. Guess where that is? Um, vagina? Yeah. But those marks were deemed to be natural. Okay, so they didn't just take them on face value. Oh, they're like, hey, it's a mole. That's right. Hey, what you got there, you got yourself a mole. That's a mole. You want to have that checked regularly to make sure that that doesn't go malignant. And it's not skin cancer. Yeah. That's right. Now, Edmund, he was interrogated further. So they didn't just take his, you know, story on Stupid word for it. (laughs) It was stupid story. Oh, my God. (laughs) And, of course, he crumbled. Not surprising. And he said that his story had been inspired by the Devis family and the tales of what had happened at Malkin Tower. Oh, for fuck's sake. So it all keeps coming full circle. So he just heard that story and he was like, this is a great story. I'll make up a similar one. I like stories about witches. I too shall make a story. But of course, the great irony is that Janice Devis, who had been the nine-year-old child who set the precedent for child (gasps) witnesses leading to the arrests of adults, herself became a victim of a child witness whose story led to the arrest of her. You had that coming. Yeah, so that coming, Janet. If you think that she was guilty, then perhaps we can see this as a bit of a comeuppance. Yeah, maybe. Unfortunately for Janet, though, despite the fact that Edmund's story was tossed out, her time in prison may not have been very easily overcome. And this was because inmates had to pay their own way. What so the fuck? She actually kind of developed debt in prison. Actually, this makes sense, though, because the thing is, is that otherwise, if you're super duper poor, that, that was so to stop poor people committing a small crime so they'd go into jail and get fed for free. Okay. Yeah. So that actually does make sense. But it, but it means that if you don't have any family, then how are you supposed to get out? Because you can't work. Yeah, that's right. And so... You've just built up all this debt and it's just going to keep building up. And we don't know how long she was in there then. That's like that time that I had a whole bunch of furniture in a storage compartment. And I couldn't... Just like that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have the money to get it. So it kept staying in there and it kept getting into more debt. <laughs> Okay, it's nothing like that, but it's, it's a little bit it's like it's similar. There you go. That's look. Your I can relate. <laughs> I can sympathise. Oh, but anyway, that's our kind of cruel twist of irony ending for Janet. Is that while she didn't die at the hands of a child witnesses account, she did get arrested and probably suffer quite horrifically mm. in prison. So oh. she got. Did she get out eventually? We don't really know. Oh, so she could have died in there. Yeah, we don't know what happened to her after that. That's sort of the last trace of Janet. Oh, wow. Mm. So was Janet a malicious girl on a vengeful power trip or was she the suggestible victim of an ambitious magistrate? Or did she genuinely believe most of what she said? I think that's probably true. How can we possibly ever know? We can't. What does Janet Winterson say about it? Jeanette Winterson, um, I like that she kind of takes the all of this is true route. So yeah. she's got the familiars in here. Yeah. I have to. I haven't read that one. I'm I really, really one. recommend The Daylight Gate to anybody who would like to read more about this trial. There's also a really great BBC documentary. That's got animation in it as well. It's got it? great animation in it. Mm. Yeah, so that is the story of Janet Davis and the Pendle Hill Witch Trials. Good times. Yeah. Thank you. That was a long episode. I can deep dive into this stuff. I could do a whole season on this. Maybe um, we should. Maybe we should just make next year witch year. The year of the witches. <gasps> the year of the witches. The year of the witches. That made me so happy. All right. That's what we're doing, everyone. Next year is going to be the year of the witches. <laughs> then the year after that we can do, the I year don't of the know, pirates. the year of the pirates. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just theme everything from here on in. Do like For a whole year. Do like theming things. I feel like maybe we should just do specials. 
Okay, sure. Yeah. But anyway, that was great. Thank you so very much. Yeah. And again, I mean, yeah, we have touched on some of those themes before. Yeah, I especially think. when we did our episode on Tituba and we and the went Salem into witch the, trials. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, Tituba was a very, very different figure. Very different figure, though. Yeah, um, and the the influence of like Abigail and the other girls on that trial, mm. similar but still kind of from a different perspective as well. There was much more of a mass hysteria then. Yeah, see, that's the difference as well. Is that concept of hysteria and that <sighs> concept of people working themselves up and working each other up. But that doesn't happen here because here it's just this one child against her whole own family. But how do we know that she hasn't worked herself up, though? Yeah, that's true. Again, you know, thinking about this, she's believing her It's not a group hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. But the community still could have been quite hysterical. I mean, James's kind of influence over everybody at the time, you know, They all knew of demonology. They they knew enough to know all of the what mm. witches were supposed to do and what all of the marks of the witch were and you know What if somebody had turned around and said, Oh yeah, well she's a witch as well? Because Janet. Janet. Because obviously I because, don't I honestly don't know why they didn't. Because this is the thing, right? It's because James, so her brother who also died, mm. he turned around he was accused, but then he also turned around and started accusing everybody else as yeah, well. That's right. But no one accused Janet. No. So she gets off the hook. But if what if James had just suddenly thought, oh fuck, I better accuse her too? Or yeah. if somebody had thought, I better accuse her as well. I don't know why. Maybe it's because she did that have this aura of childhood innocence about her. Maybe mm. it was because she was a child. Or maybe it's because she hadn't been included in that initial arrest, mm. which kind of separated her from everybody else. Um, or maybe it's because her the older people in her family knew what would happen if they accused her and they didn't want her to be hanged the way yeah. they were going to be hanged. Yeah, maybe. Because I think that that's a really key part of thinking about this is the way that children don't think forward to the ramifications mm. of what they're saying. Mm. I genuinely don't believe a nine-year-old girl fully comprehends no, that I don't think so. her family is going to be hanged yeah. because of this. Her entire family. Her entire family. She's going to become an orphan. Yeah. But it's so interesting because there are so many cases where groups of children, like they, in that, again, that kind of mass hysteria, they led to, like in, I was doing a walking tour in Stockholm and this was one of the, you know, stops was this place where this group of children and children in Swedish courts were only considered to be like a percentage of an adult and mm. depending on their age. And so when you had... How a, much percentage they were of an adult. Oh my God. Yeah. And so when you had a group of them together, like say you had five children, that might equal one adult's testimony, <gasps> right? Wow. Which is a strange logic. Yeah. But what it meant was this group of like 20 kids or 10, I can't remember exactly how many it was. It was a long time ago that I did this walking tour. But this group of children, their collective testimony, which equaled then however many adults, and they had all just worked each other up into hysteria Mm. and all made up these stories, ended up getting like all of these people arrested and executed as witches. Mm. So it happened, like it happens a lot. Like I think children really just don't understand. They just don't understand the power of their testimony they don't understand the consequences of their testimony Mm. and they get caught up in their stories they just love this i think they just love the imaginative the adventure of it Mm. the like oh yeah we saw some witches and you know yeah yeah and that one turned into a greyhound and then that one turned into a horse and then that's a crazy story well edmund Well, thank you, Lauren, once again, yeah. for taking us down the witch path. I love the witch path. It's my favourite path. It's a very, very good path to go down. Uh, I don't think I'll be going down the witch path next time. Do you know where you're going to go? 
No, okay. I don't. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'll steer. I'll steer away from witches. Okay, for now. Yeah. Uh, but we'll we'll be there again. We'll come oh, back. We'll we'll come back. Yeah. But until then, I'll have a think. <laughs> And at the start of the show, we did mention uh, the pirates. We did. So, Alicia's now wearing the pirate hat. Yeah, we did have a hat swap at one point during this episode. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled on social medias. For some exciting announcements. Pirate-related announcements. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, there are a bunch of different ways that you can support us. So you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, we are at DeviantWomen. And, of course, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and so you can subscribe to us on any of those. And please do leave us a review. And, of course, if you really want to support us and show your love for us, you can join us on Patreon. Our patrons are our favourite listeners. Sorry, everybody else. There are a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes sort of exclusives that you get, extra episodes, mini-sodes. We've now delved into the world of short films uh, and animation so it's a little as two dollars and you can join us on patreon it's really worth every cent and it helps us greatly that's what we think and finally of course if you would like your own exclusive deviant women merchandise you can find our shop on etsy and that's all for us for this week so once again as always a big thank you to india hui for the music and to brendan davies for the sound and we'll see you guys next time bye bye